1: This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. A budget deal meant to close a massive deficit is set to be voted on at the Capitol. But what exactly is in that budget? Mayors and selectmen of towns and cities feel like they've got an idea about what's in there. And they're none too pleased. They're wondering about that no new taxes pledge. And even without a budget in place, eagle-eyed government watchers are already on rat patrol. It's Wednesday. That means The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. You can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org, slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us in studio, as always, is Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Howdy, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dan Kosky. Dan Clow is here. He's an attorney who also writes at appealinglybrief.com and ctgoodgov.com. Hi, Dan. Hey, good morning, John. And Christine Stewart, the editor of ctnewsjunkie.com, is here as well. Hello, Christine. Hello. So, first of all, let's start. Not with the Connecticut state budget, but with the Connecticut Democratic and Republican parties. Uh, They made their endorsements for congressional candidates over the last few days at their conventions. We'll get to how one party's chairman tried to keep one of our favorite reporters off the convention floor. But first, some overall takeaways. Colin, just really quickly, how much do these state conventions really matter? I mean, we don't pay a ton of attention to them when we don't have, you know, a whole lot of really close potential uh, races for uh, for maybe Senate seats or, or, or congressional seats. But how much do these uh, matter in a, in a year like this? Well, I guess I have a terrible confession to
2: make, which is that um, I often do go to these conventions. I usually go to these conventions. <laughs> and this, year, this year, the Republican convention was taking place at the uh, Hartford Convention Center. While it was going on, I was literally across the street watching Captain America Civil War at Spotlight uh, movie theaters. Good for you. Because it just seemed (laughs) more relevant (laughs) somehow than going to the convention. Now, the the reality is that in some ways conventions maybe are a little bit more relevant in this cycle than they sometimes are because, in fact, the old kind of of back-of-the-envelope calculation for awarding delegates is a little bit more problematic. I think it got a little less problematic when when, uh, Trump consolidated his lead and it looks like we won't have a contested convention. But for a while... It seemed very important to know who the delegates were and what they would do on a second ballot, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And so therefore, the actual awarding of delegates got to be very important. It didn't really change that much. I mean, I did hear that there was a little bit of a struggle back and forth between J.R. Romano, who's the young chairman of the Republican Party, and Ben Proto, who's handling delegate math for Trump. Um, But there isn't ever any question about who will prevail in a situation like this. Proto and Trump will prevail. Once you've won, you pretty much get to dictate at least, I mean, not all terms, but you certainly get to dictate those terms. The same thing happened four years ago, where there was some sense that uh, Labriola, then the Republican chairman, chairman, could, you know, have more say than the Romney people wanted him to have. The Romney people won. You know, if if, if you've won, if they're your delegates, you get to say who they are. So it was never going to all that interesting. Now, um, the Democrats do something a little bit different from the Republicans as far as the congressional races. Uh, The the Republicans kind of break out at the convention (laughs) into these little things uh, where they do their congressional races. So that that makes it a little bit more interesting, too, these kind of sub-conventions that they have. Uh, But I don't think that the things that came out of those sub-conventions aren't necessarily... Earth-shattering. Although I I think, you know, to a point we'll be making later, we should suspend
1: judgment on that. Well, and before we get back to the Republicans where most of the really interesting stuff happened, uh, Christine, you called the Democratic Convention divided. Of course, that's in part because of the close contest in the state between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders in the primary. They will essentially split the delegates. But with all of the party support behind Clinton, and you have all of these incumbents who are essentially being anointed once again to run for the congressional seats. How unusual was it for you to even write the words, a divided convention, on the Democratic side?
0: Yeah, it was kind of interesting. You could kind of see these cracks within the um, Democratic Party, not only along the lines of Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, but also along the lines of of labor. The fact that uh, you had two labor guys standing outside the convention hall. Uh, handing out uh, flyers to delegates, reminding them how big a part of the Democratic Party that labor is and has been. And and I don't believe um, I don't know if she was there. I did not see her. But uh, Lori Pelletier, who's the president of the AFL-CIO, usually is, you know, a presence um, at these conventions, and, and I did not see her. I'm not saying that she wasn't there. It's possible she was there. But,
1: but you, you usually don't have to remind Democrats that labor is a big part of their, like, constituency. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so so that was, that was sort of odd. And as far as um, the Bernie people were outside, you know, reminding people that, you know, even though— I think it was like 28-29 divide between Clinton and, and Sanders as far as the delegates that are proportioned. There are 16 superdelegates in Connecticut. And, you know, their argument is that enough of the vote went to Bernie Sanders that it should be, you know, 9-7 as far as the superdelegate split goes. But the superdelegates um, are all elected officials and constitutional officers here in Connecticut, and they're all lining up behind Clinton.
2: And, and they all, of course, lining up behind Clinton. You know, one thing that I didn't uh, never got around to checking, maybe it came out of the convention, it looked on primary day or the day after primary day as though Sanders had totally won the second district. I mean, I think he won all but three towns uh, in the second district.
1: Did he get
0: all the second district? Uh, I don't know. I did not go – Back and check that. Yeah. So it's possible, though.
1: Well, so, so there's this Bernie and Hillary divide that's happening actually at state party conventions all over the country right now, Colin. But there's another thing when Christine talks about labor, there's this other one that, that gets to maybe something we'll be talking about in just a little bit. Maybe there's the Dan Malloy divide. The fact is that the Democrats in the state are sort of feeling these competing pressures because of pushbacks against the budget, pushbacks against state workers wondering about whether or not Dan Malloy is the, is the guy that labor uh, thought they were going to get when they got him into office.
2: Yeah. And when we say labor, I think maybe it's important to uh, I mean, I assume when we say labor in this context, we basically mean state employees unions. We don't we're not talking about United Auto Workers or something like that. Or I mean, we're talking about state employees. That's what labor means in Connecticut, I think. So <laughs> so so, it, yeah, there uh, maybe there is that divide that that in fact, you know, labor has believed in the past. The, the state employees unions have believed in the past that if they back certain candidates, uh, they will be heard. They will be heard in full. Uh, and they certainly don't feel that way right now.
3: I think this is shaping up to be an election that could be pivotal for the role of labor, particularly in the democratic politics in the state. Uh, you know, As Colin and Christine were saying, there's a long history of of uh, democratic candidates feeling a strong need to respond to the wishes and desires of the public sector labor union. And, and I think we're seeing now uh, many, many democrats who are up for election in November. The governor isn't, but they are. Uh, coming to the conclusion that siding with labor is not the smart bet this year.
0: Yeah, um, and this is the flyer that was being handed out um, by Labor at the the Democratic Convention.
1: Um, uh, oh, oh, yeah, and at the bottom it says very clearly, vote no on Governor Malloy's austerity budget. Yes. Well, and, you know, now he's taking uh, ownership, I guess, in their minds on this austerity budget. We'll be talking about <laughs> that in just, a, in just a moment. Let's turn to the GOP side because that's where some of the really interesting stuff was. The most interesting, perhaps, Christine, uh, State uh, Representative Dan Carter from Bethel, one of three candidates vying for the endorsement to take on Dick Blumenthal for his Senate seat. He won despite not getting into the race until last month. Quickly, tell us about Dan Carter.
0: Yeah, so Dan Carter, uh, you know, three-term state representative from the small little town of, of Bethel, uh, you know, didn't see that there was any viable candidates on the Republican side or he felt that there weren't any viable candidates, even though August Woof had been um, running for about a year. Uh, And he jumped into the race. And and quickly, I think we saw uh, the delegate support lining up behind him. Now, what was interesting at the convention, usually you will see, um, you know, as soon as you see the vote tally not going in your favor, if you're a candidate, you're walking around the convention floor. You're reminding delegates that, you know, that you've been out there, that you've been you know, that you're the better candidate. Um, August Wolf was over on the sidelines just watching I, I guess, watching the entire convention vote against him and vote in favor of, of Carter. And then it got even worse as as time progressed.
1: It, it, it got worse. In, in, in <laughs> he August lost Wolf, votes. But by the end, he lost votes and, and he and he lost. And he said the whole thing was a sham, Colin.
2: Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'd like to say August Wolf is also in Captain America Civil War. <laughs> uh, he's on Iron Man's side, I'm pretty sure. But um so, yeah, I mean, at the end, he said, he said that it was a sham, it was corrupt, there was arm twisting. Well, that's a little bit like the losing team in the Super Bowl saying the other guys were pushing. Uh, I mean, that's pretty much what goes on at conventions. That's how you win conventions. You get out on the floor and you break arms and you do what you have to do. And and, and this is kind of of a, of a piece. I mean, August Wolf, although I, I think he's been a very entertaining candidate, seems like he's probably a pretty nice guy, interesting, colorful background, Olympic shot putter. But there's been little indication that he knows how to run a campaign. He's had a lot of trouble keeping campaign staff. There have been these very dramatic turnovers uh, again and again. And certainly going to the convention not knowing that you have to have a ferocious ground game if you're you know, facing something. It's called a floor fight for a reason. Hmm. So uh, if you're not prepared to go out there and fight, you can't really afterwards say, oh, my goodness, You know, there was arm twisting going.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's what's supposed to happen at a convention. Nobody told him that.
2: You know, but this line
3: about it's a sham, this is, I think, becoming a major theme um, in in this election cycle, particularly at the presidential level. I mean, Trump uses this repeatedly uh, whenever he's unhappy with an outcome and and he's attacking the the legitimacy of the rules that are used by the parties to. You know, to nominate uh, delegates and ultimately the president, and the problem, at least from my perspective, is his. Those lines resonate with a great uh, you know percentage of the population. They um, the effect is to discredit government and the political organizations.
1: But but I guess part of your point, though, is when Donald Trump says it, it sounds like something that a lot of people would listen to. When August Wolf says it, it kind of sounds a little bit like somebody who they hadn't heard of before saying something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense.
0: Well, and at the same time. Literally him and his team were just standing there on the sidelines as this this whole vote was transpiring. I mean, if he had done anything, (laughs) if he had gone to speak to anyone, if he had, you know, it, it, it may have been it may have been different.
1: Um, but by the way, we understand that he's going to be making an announcement yes, uh, yep. later on at the Capitol, maybe at 11 o'clock today, to announce whatever he's going to do next. Do we know, Christine?
0: Uh, we don't know what he's going to do next. He could try to petition his way on the ballot, um, in which case he would have to get the signatures of 2 percent of registered so Republicans. So we would have to
1: actually get out in there and talk to some people and twist some arms and yes. that, that sort of thing. Yes, okay, exactly. I, I <laughs> see, meanwhile, let's listen to a little bit of what Dan Carter had to say.
3: I can think of no politician— who embodies the tired old politics of the previous century more than Richard Blumenthal, right? (laughs) Nearly every day for the past four decades, Dick Blumenthal has collected a taxpayer funded check of some kind while failing to provide any services back to the taxpayers. Dick Blumenthal is about Dick Blumenthal and no one else. And we need to retire him so we can finally, finally use those photo ops for his scrapbook.
1: Uh, Is Dick Blumenthal
2: shaking in his boots, Colin? Probably not. I mean, it's, it's, you know, very, very difficult to unseat a a sitting senator in Connecticut if that senator is a Democrat. Uh, I'll never forget the words of David Pudlin when we were— uh, counting votes, or he was counting votes in the Ned Lamont race, and it, it looked uh, on primary night. Uh, well, it was the case on primary night that that Lamont was going to win. He said, "You know, when you have a sitting U.S. senator who's a Democrat, it's almost impossible to get him out of office unless he's embroiled in some kind of horrible, like horrific sexual scandal, or he's stealing money or something." He said, "We're on the verge of turning a senator out of office because of his policies. That's almost un-American." Um, so, um, so I, I, you know, I mean, it's very tough now. I actually do think that there are some interesting arguments to be made against Dick Blumenthal, and interesting. And one one thing, and I'm sure Christine, that you hear this up at the state capitol. There's a group of people at the state capitol who, who complain a lot that our senators don't bring home the bacon. That Blumenthal is still basically kind of locked in this attorney general mode, where he's constantly bringing up all kinds of you know, nitpicky or sometimes very significant you know, issues, but issues that are not necessarily germane to the state of Connecticut, uh, the state of the state of Connecticut, uh, and that, that Murphy, although he much more than Blumenthal, seems to have the kind of social skills that would allow him to insert himself, you know, into this palsy-walsy world uh, of Washington politics where, you know, there's a little bit of log rolling that goes on and mean you bring home some big stuff for Connecticut. That that's, hasn't really demonstrated that skill yet either. He's uh, often, uh, you know, uh, attaching himself to these kind of signature national and international Issues which are, I mean, I think that's noble, by the way. But there are some people up at the state capitol who say, "Where's the bacon? Where's the where's the earmarks, or right. whatever you We're, call them?" <laughs>
0: interesting that, yeah, Murphy has decided to kind of focus on uh, foreign policy um, more so than domestic policy. Um, he has really though tried to focus on the issue of transportation and bringing home some of the the mm-hmm. transportation dollars. So. Um, We have that. But as far as the the other money is concerned, that's kind of been left up to the delegation. I mean,
2: some of that's just the kind of grousing that goes on up there late at night when they don't have any money and they don't know who to blame it on. So they start blaming it on (laughs) (laughs) Blumenthal and Murphy because they can't think of anybody else. So I don't I don't mean to suggest that's a legitimate complaint, but it's one that you hear.
3: Well, the other problem, of course, is that we went from a state that had two of the most senior senators and seniority matters a lot to a state which has two of the most junior senators. Um, And that just makes it more difficult for them to to uh, bring home the bacon.
1: Well, let's just talk about a a few more of the outcomes of this Republican convention. Sherman first-electman Clay Cope won the Republican endorsement to challenge Democratic uh, Representative Elizabeth Esty. That's in the 5th Congressional District. In the 2nd District, uh, the Republican challenger to Representative Joe Courtney will now now be Daria Novak. She won by just five delegates. I I don't know. I'll I'll turn to you first, Christine. Mm -hmm. Any surprises in there? I mean, what do we know about these two candidates? So we, we, We find Clay Cope an interesting person. Daria Novak is someone we've heard about before.
0: Yeah, no, Clay Cope is definitely an interesting person, and, you know, we have no idea if he's um, breaking any any ground as um, the first openly gay Republican candidate for, for federal office here in, in Connecticut. It's likely that he is breaking some ground there, but um, he says that has nothing to do with um, him being a public servant, uh, you know, and he's been a public servant for about 15 years, I believe, uh, in the town of Sherman, so uh, easily won over over Bill Stevens— um, of, of new towns. And, so. and you,
1: you literally can't come from a smaller town than Sherman, Connecticut. I mean, right. it's, <laughs> it's about the smallest place in the world. So, Clay Cope and Daria Novak, Colin.
2: Right. So, um, well, first of all, Cope had to survive a bit of ugliness at the convention, where there were some allegations that were made about him that turned out to be about his brother, uh, who had been using his name and getting arrested, and that was anyway thirty years ago or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess my- <laughs> that
1: August Wolf is what usually happens at conventions. Right, anyway, exactly. Please- <laughs>
2: exactly. That, yes. um, so. You know, I, I guess my sort of spring resolution here is to not take anything for granted. I think we should have learned that by now. Over the last, uh, say, nine months or so, the, the prevailing lesson should be that the conventional wisdom is kind of a dead fish and we should ignore it. So my thought, I mean, I do feel as though the 5th District, where Elizabeth Esty currently serves, is a very tippy district. There's no reason it can't be tipped in the other direction with a really good candidate. I don't know how good Clay Hope can be. I mean, the old me would have laughed, you know, first selectman of Sherman. How far can you go with that? But I, I, I think we don't know. We, one thing we do know is that Trump, at least among Republicans— uh, ran incredibly strong right there. I said this a couple of weeks ago. The spine of his support in Connecticut was Route 8 or the Naugatuck River, take your pick, but like right down there. And a lot of that's in the fifth. So, um, so you know, I mean, if he's a really good candidate, I, I don't know anything about him. Uh, if he's a really good candidate, he could run well. Now, Darian Novak is that that is running the same play over and over again. Uh, they had another candidate, maybe a little bit more establishment. Her name was Ann Brooks. She's a tax attorney. Uh, She lost by a handful of votes. (laughs) <laughs> somebody was telling me that Sid Holbrook, who used to be yes. like uh, head of the DUP and he was Roland, I think he was Roland's chief of staff at one point, or something like that anyway. He was a guy from the Roland administration that he was supposed to put her name in nomination and the times got all mixed up or he mixed up the times. I have this hard, I, I have a hard problem wrapping my idea around this Sid Holbrook bump that could have put, you know, <laughs> Ann Brooke over the top. But maybe in the world of a Republican convention, that's true, you know. And Daria, Daria Novak is, I think, not a very good candidate. She's kind of a Tea Party candidate with these weird radio and TV shows that, as far as I know, no one has ever seen. And I just don't I don't see how they win against Courtney. With her.
0: Yeah, no, they apparently had a script and, you know, they, they said, you know, who's going to you know, we're suggesting, you know, nominations. We're taking nominations. And there were people who were prepared to stand up and speak and nominate these people. and And those people did not get up and speak. So random people who wanted to place these names in nomination actually made the speeches. It was apparently. improv night. Yes. <laughs> hey, it's like an open That's mic right. night. Yes, well, and Gary
1: well, Novak's also really cool. Well, well, well look, and, and before we before we close out this, this section and, and talk just a little bit about the uh, Neil Vigdor gate, I, I want to ask you, though, Colin, you you mentioned this notion about conventional wisdom. You had, you had drawn this Jim Rutenberg piece uh, in the New York Times to, to my attention. You know, the Republican horse race is over. He writes in Journalism Lost. His basic argument is you know, the guys who look at the polls and the data and probability and conventional wisdom have just gotten it wrong, wrong, wrong. People who like talk to a bunch of voters, people who actually are starting to take the pulse of America, including, you know, the spine of the Connecticut Naugatuck River Valley are actually starting to learn something about maybe a new kind of conventional wisdom. Do you think that we are writing off the clay copes of the world too quickly?
2: I think maybe we are. I I will say that um, yesterday, I listened to the I clearly have no life. I clear, I listened to Nate Silver's or the Five Thirty Eight political podcast where where they interpreted Rutenberg's piece as a diss and gave him the equivalent of, you know, Circe's walk down King's Landing naked with feces being <laughs> flung at her. You know, I mean, it was just I've never heard one uh, three or four journalists beat up on another journalist the way they beat up on Rutenberg. So, and and I, I didn't see the piece as an attack on data journalism. They, they did. But more that there's just stuff that you learn, you know. Like, I, I mean, I haven't really been very good about getting out in the field, but when I do get out, the most informative day by far in this political season was the day I went to the Trump rally and just talked to Trump supporters the whole time. And it just, you know, you get them out of those uniform um, holes you've been shoving them into and you start to see them as individual people and, and hear what they're saying and realize that, you know, there are some, there's a percent percentage of them who are crazy racist. But there's also a much larger percentage of them are people who are just looking for something. They're looking for something. And, and for whatever reason, this guy sounds real to them. And that's important to understand.
3: I think um, I'll go with the 538 and the data Anytime. You know, in the long run, if you want to understand what's happening, you need good data. That does not mean that polls by any mean are perfect. Um, But if they're done correctly and you aggregate them, you know, the way Nate Silver does, they tell you a, a much better macro story. But... Uh, I, I think that at least from uh, an interest perspective, reader interest uh, perspective, talking with people on the ground, hearing what they have to say, how they're thinking
1: is uh, is essential. Well, and I'll just say quickly, one of the arguments that Rutenberg makes in his piece is that somehow or other Nate Silver got it wrong because he said that there was a 90 percent chance that Hillary Clinton would uh, win Indiana and actually Bernie Sanders won by a healthy margin. The point is it's 90%. It doesn't mean she's going to win. That's what percentages are all about. Anyway, I digress. Christine? (laughs) 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 No, just just your thought on getting out and talking to voters. You've You've talked to a lot of them, and you've gotten a chance to hear from people, Trump supporters, people who are maybe saying unconventional things this year. Is it true maybe that we're missing some of the real story right now?
0: No, what I thought was interesting about the Trump rally, so in talking to the Trump supporters before the rally, I asked them who they've voted for in the last presidential election. And most of them had voted for Obama. And some of the people I talked to hadn't been to a political rally since John F. Kennedy ran for president. So it was, you know, it was definitely an interesting uh, mix of voters. And you have to get out there and talk to them.
1: Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk briefly about whether or not the man who is at the helm of the GOP here in Connecticut was getting something really quite wrong by keeping one of our colleagues off the convention floor and then eventually allowing him back on. What it says about the state of the Connecticut uh, Republican Party. We're also going to talk about the state of the state budget. There's supposed to be a special session to go in and vote for this big budget fix. When will this happen and what's in that budget that's coming up on The Wheelhouse right after this, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankoski. Uh, just a quick note that next week our weekly news roundtable will be off. We're taking a hiatus week, just to regroup. We'll be back in two weeks on May 25th, and we can't wait to bring you the new wheelhouse. Uh, Joining us, as always, is Colin McEnroe. He's the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hey, Colin, what's on your show today?
2: You know, this ties into what we're talking about somehow, but I'm almost too tired to figure out how it does. Uh, David Reif has written this (laughs) book. Uh, David Reif is, you know, a formidable uh, intellectual, uh, has written this book about the importance of forgetting, that we sort of assume that the way to understand everything, uh, is to remember and store everything. But that ultimately that can ham. I, I'll give you I'll, I can give you a contemporary example. This is mine, not his. But, okay. you know, as we look at Donald Trump, what do we do? We say, well, he's like Hitler this way or he's like Mussolini this way. We recognize this pattern uh, from the past. Well, that that may not be a really effective way to look at Trump. He's not really Hitler or Mussolini. There may be certain elements there. But ultimately, our, our inability to stop thinking about these historical parallels, although it, that can be useful. It also can be really, really confusing uh, and maybe misleading. So that's more or less where we're going.
1: And you actually you mind some of that territory yesterday in your conversation with Stephen Metcalf and in, in some of his writing about Donald Trump and uh, the baby boom generation. I just I, I will endorse people to go back and listen to because it it's about the most fascinating half hour of analysis about uh, Donald Trump and what you should know about him. As I've heard, that was yesterday's Colin McEnroe show. So listen today at one o'clock as well. Also joining us today is Dan Clow. He is attorney uh, who writes uh, appealing, Brief.com and also ctgoodgov.com and our friend Christine Stewart, who's editor of ctnewsjunkie.com. One of the stories we wanted to get to was At the state Republican Party convention, uh, originally we had heard that J.R. Romano, the head of the state party, had banned our friend Neil Vigdor. He's a reporter for the Hearst, Connecticut newspapers from actually going there because he didn't like some of the coverage. He said he was being unfair to Republicans. He was using unnamed sources. He eventually relented. And uh, Christine posted this little uh, explanation that J.R. Romano had. Connecticut Republican Party. I'm standing in our empty convention hall getting ready for tonight's state convention, and I wanted to address the controversy surrounding this convention due to my decision to deny credentials to one member of the media because of what I felt was unfair coverage of our candidates and the party. Now, as a chairman, it is my responsibility to stand up when I feel as though our party and our candidates are being disrespectful or, or being covered improperly, and I felt that I did that. So, what I'd like to say at this point is that that particular reporter is welcome to our state convention. He will be credentialed. I just needed to draw attention to what I felt was unfair coverage. Okay, so this this Jerry Romano. What exactly, first of all, Christine, I just, what exactly was the unfair coverage? What was improperly being done by, by Neil Vigdor?
0: Uh, there was a bunch uh, this had actually uh j r Romano had gone down and spoken to neil 's editor uh the week before and and he laid out a bunch of bunch of issues with with some of the stories that um Neil had done uh and he didn't apparently feel that he had gotten a satisfactory answer or uh, there was no conclusion out of that, and so he decided to um take action and, and not credential, Neil.
1: Yeah, and I'll just say, Colin, this happens to us quite a bit. It's, it happens more than it's ever happened in my career where um, we'll write something or we'll put something on the radio, we'll say something here in the wheelhouse, and we'll almost immediately get a call, sometimes from a Republican, sometimes from a Democrat, um, often it's from some an office up at the state capitol, that says, you're being unfair. You've gotten this entire, entirely wrong. This seems to be a trend that, I, I don't know, maybe it's always... <laughs> happened. But it just feels as though this sense that uh, Republican Party leaders, Democratic Party leaders can control the media message is something that they feel is part of their job and they can do something about.
2: Well, you could argue that rapid response started in 1992 with the famous war room of James Carville and George Stephanopoulos, although that tended to be sort of um, messaging kind of out in the open field where everybody could see it. You're absolutely right. Now uh, there's more of this kind of going directly to the press and trying to spin the press in a somewhat more direct and manipulative at times way. But I I I've feel as though, first of all, I'd like to make sure we don't leave out one part of this, which is that J.R. Romano, in the course of um, banning Neil Vigder, sent out uh, an email blast to state Republicans uh, asking them to give him money uh, to aid him in the fight against unfair journalism. So, I mean, first of all, this kind of thing goes on on all the time, too. I mean, the, the creation of a real or straw enemy, it's usually somebody like Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or somebody like that. And they say if you don't want Donald Trump to take over the talk Valley, give us the money right away, $5 to check this amount, you know. And, and I don't think I've ever seen it with the press before. And it, you know, I mean, as... As enemies go, I mean, there's a a big distance to travel between Voldemort and Vigdor. You know, I just, you know, using him as this sort of dark lord, you know, that it just, it it seemed very inappropriate and kind of in a society that does value the freedom of the press and the role of the press, it seemed that, like, you know, saying this guy's so horrible, I need money to to undo the terrible damage he's doing to us, seemed... That's where I thought he kind of crossed the line. And apparently, I'm told... He, he has been telling his people, anyway, that
1: he did raise some money that way. I, uh, yeah, and, but wasn't it also accompanied by an appeal to, like, reach out directly to Neil Vigdor and, like, write him emails yes. and that sort of thing? This, yes. is, this is, again, a, a part of it, and this goes back to something that we heard. Where, where did we hear this before? I wish I had the Wayback music. You know, John Rowland uh, telling people to, to, to call uh, poor Andrew Andy Rohrabach's yeah. <laughs> uh, right, line directly. Yeah. <laughs> this is something that we seemingly, again, hear over and over again. We're going to raise money around it, and we're also going to uh, call people out so that they can— call directly, flood their email box, it seems, I know, to me, unseemly, Dan. How about to you?
3: Well, I think it is unseemly. But you said something. It, it, it was either just before we went on break or during break about what does this say about the Republican Party in Connecticut? I don't think it's as much of anything about the Republican Party. I think it says a lot about the maturity of J.R. Romano and and a, a, an unwise decision that he made which he's probably come to regret,
1: but but you you had also wanted to say something about you know the the Democrats, the very Democrats who of course are then, then lighting up and asking for money uh, themselves because of everything J.R. Romano' doing, doing to the press, maybe not so fast in all the name calling yeah well that's true i mean uh, it's one thing when uh when uh, Themis comes
3: out and and tries to disown herself from that, but when the leadership and the and the Democrats are screaming about the First Amendment, I had to chuckle because, as we all know. Um, the action is what goes on in the caucus, and the caucus is not subject to freedom of information. So when when the leadership on both sides... (laughs) decides to allow
2: the press into the caucuses, they can really... Just to be clear, he's he's talking now about the General Assembly caucuses. Yes, General Uh, Assembly caucuses. And and I will say, this may surprise you, but there was a time when we were allowed in a lot of the caucuses. I'm now about to become really, really old. But I'd say uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, I think both Senate caucuses, the press could just go in there and sit. Um, Mm -hmm. I know the Democrats did, and I'm pretty sure the Republicans did, too. I don't think that that... I can't remember whether the House caucuses let us in or not. But there was a period of time, maybe in the early days of the Grasso law uh, that uh, they said, yeah, sure, come in. We don't care. You know? People smoked
1: a lot of cigarettes in those meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: what I think was interesting about this whole thing is, you know, can the Republican Party really afford and did J.R. Romano raise enough money, uh, you know, to make up for the earned media that he would have have gotten um, as a result of more news organizations covering these things. And, and let's be honest, you know, uh, there's not enough news organizations lining up to cover these conventions anymore. I counted four reporters at the Democratic convention on, on you know, on Saturday. So I'm not quite sure that there were that many more at the Republican one.
1: And in one of the posts that Colin wrote about this, I will just say he brought up one of my big bugaboos, which is that these conventions are truly not just Party conventions. These are enacting some of the will that was put forward by Connecticut voters during an open, uh, not an open primary system, but a public primary system that is paid for by the public. The fact is, is that having reporters there to report on this stuff, which is essentially the residue of what people voted on with our money is probably something that I don't know, we should be able to have access to, Colin?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not like the Playboy Club or something. I mean, this is, uh, although it sometimes does resemble that, but um, no, it, it it's, this is a one of the arguments that I would make for, for the notion that it's not really J.R. Romano's call. Uh, I, I mean, in a way, it is the party events are effectively private events. I mean, uh, you know, uh, probably as a matter of law, he could exclude a member of the press or maybe all the press, but, but as a matter of principle, no. You know, as you say, we paid for this primary, and you could even say, That the Republicans are kind of on welfare a little bit uh, with this because, in fact, all Connecticut taxpayers uh, paid for this primary. There are 2 million voters in Connecticut, 400,000 of them are Republicans. So, but all the other ones help pay for this primary. And then they're going to have a convention to allocate the delegates based on the primary results. So, you could say the convention is an apple from the tree of that primary that we paid for. And then the result, the the pie they're going to make out of that apple, is the ballot. Uh, There are going to be people on the ballot. Uh, in a lot of races, uh, not just uh, the presidential ballot, but the congressional races and stuff that will be chosen at these conventions. So the press is there to monitor that process. The, uh, the press is there as a proxy for voters who will have to use that ballot. The press is there to a certain extent as a proxy for the 400,000 Republicans who did not choose J.R. Romano. He was chosen in a different way. And and so they may want to know what's going on at their convention, which they're not attending.
1: And a proxy for the 800,000 Connecticut voters who aren't able to take part in the uh, primary system. You know, Colin raises a very interesting point, and it's one that I, as a lawyer, have been, have been thinking a lot
3: about, especially since the incident a couple months ago where a local registrar and a party leader tossed somebody from the party rolls on a, a loyalty issue. And the question, the question is, what is a political party? Is it a private organization that can uh, decide who its members are and exclude people that it doesn't want? Or is it a public organization that is subject to certain laws, uh, such as anti-discrimination laws? And, and the short answer is, unfortunately, it's both in some ways, it is a private organization, a voluntary association of people with a shared set of ideas. And in other ways, for the reasons that Colin just expressed, it is a very public association and uh, and is subject to rules that apply to public organizations.
1: Okay, so let's talk about uh, something that has rules applying to public organizations. It's the Connecticut State Legislature. Last week, a very low-key end to the regular legislative session, mainly because the state budget didn't even come up for a vote. Uh, first of all, Christine, what is happening next? I mean, We we heard about a budget deal between the governor and Democrats, and then we thought maybe we'd get a vote on it. We didn't get a vote on it. We're supposed to now have a special session. The first question is, when are they going to vote?
0: Secondly, what's
1: in this budget again?
0: Right. So uh, the Senate has scheduled a vote for Thursday uh, on this budget, which was just the language was just released yesterday Uh, a 95-page budget document. There's nothing really different than what was in the 31-page Excel sheet that people had for six days to guess what was going to be in the budget document. Uh, But what we still don't have is we still don't have the budget implementation language, which is all the public policy that comes behind those numbers. Um, And that's where the rats go. Uh, So that that is the language that we really want to take a look at. We really want to see. And we'd like to see maybe 24 hours in advance of a special session. But I don't think that that's going to happen. But but
1: again, one of the reasons that we heard the vote wasn't taken at the end of the legislative session was that. Lawmakers wouldn't have time to view all of this information, and they wouldn't have the uh, necessary information to vote on this budget. And now we are days and days later, and we still don't have that information, and we could likely go and vote on it without having that be public
0: again? Yeah. So my <laughs> guess is that they don't have the votes. Um, so they're, not, they're trying to figure out what will get them enough votes to get this budget over the goal line, which cuts, you know, cuts a lot of spending uh, for a lot of programs. A lot, a lot of spending.
2: Yeah, so um, this that kind of rhetoric was going on that night, too, was there was both, oh, we want to give people a lot of time to read the budget, but... Yeah, we got the votes we you, you, you want us to do it now we'll do it right now uh, you know we can do it, um, you know. it
0: it's, it's a dead fish and the longer you leave the dead fish out in the open on the counter it's going to smell
2: yeah so you got this an opportunity I think that's one of the reasons also that there hasn't been more transparency is they know that the more people know the more people are going to peck away back to uh, labor which we were talking about at the beginning of the show today the more labor knows what's in here the more the towns know about what's not in there for them them, uh, the more pecking away, the more complaining, the more distortion. I mean, they need to be able to vote on something, a document that's stable. Uh, And if anybody knows what it is, (laughs) they won't be able to vote for it. So, I mean, I do have to say that uh, I I feel as though Len Fasano, the leader of the Senate, Republican leader of the Senate, and Thomas Claratus, who is both uh, the Republican leader of the House and I believe a character on Game of Thrones, um, (laughs) is... uh, you know, I think they're right. I mean, it's it's hard to argue with a statement that they put out, which is, you know, it's been like a week. Show us the whole damn. You basically said you had the thing a week ago. You know, show it all to us. Show the implementers, which are, of course, where all the really nasty stuff winds up. But, I mean, there's you, you can't really understand where the budget is without seeing the implementers. That's the technical language that actually makes the budget happen, but it's also incredibly full of sewage and stuff like that. So show, let's see it all. You know, now. (laughs) And, and you know, I don't know how you argue against that. I think they are on very solid ground and the Democrats have handled this poorly.
0: Well, and this is another thing. Uh, Dan will tell you that um, legislature has exempted itself from FOI. So even though, you know, a local town has to um, put an agenda up 24 hours before a a meeting, the, the state legislature doesn't.
3: I'll tell you, I'm a lifelong Democrat, but if I were a Democrat in the the General Assembly, I would be raising an uprising against leadership to say it is absolutely irresponsible to force us, rank-and-file members, to vote on perhaps the single most significant document that will come out of the legislature legislature this year without time to understand it and study it.
1: I I want to take a break. When we come back, let's talk a little bit more about what we know is going to be in that budget. Some of it has to do with towns and cities. They're saying, you know, all these pledges about no new taxes in this new budget. Well, I don't know about that. If we cut aid to cities and towns, we might have to raise taxes. We'll be talking about that and also some other things that we might be looking for on Rat Patrol with Dan Clow who writes appealinglybrief.com and ctgoodgov.com, Christine Stort from ctnewsjunkie.com, and our own Colin McEnroe here in The Wheelhouse, where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankoski. Coming up on tomorrow's show, it's a very special Where We Live. I'll be joined by Lucy Nalpathanchel, who's taking over as the host of Where We Live starting next week. And we're going to be doing a Colin show. We're going to be finding out what you've loved about Where We Live over the course of the last 10 years, what you'd like to hear more of. We're going to get some story ideas for Lucy, and we're going to take a bunch of your phone calls. So get ready on the phones. That's tomorrow's Where We Live. It should be a lot of fun. Today in the program, it's in the Wheelhouse, Weekly News Roundtable, and we're talking with Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show here on WNPR. Christine Stort, who's the editor of ctnewsjunkie.com, and Dan Clow, he's an attorney and he's a, an FOI stalwart. He's also uh, the writer of appealinglybrief.com and uh, ctgoodgov.com. V- very quickly, as, as we get to some of the things on the uh, legislative uh, agenda as they try to pass this budget, We're hearing, Christine, once again from towns and cities. And, of course, they, along with hospitals, have been on the chopping blocks. And, you know, they can stand in line with many other folks who uh, are are used to getting services from the state who are all going to have cuts because we've got this big budget hole. But the towns and cities are piping up and saying, hey, look, one of the things that Republicans uh, or excuse me, Democrats are saying about this new budget is, we're not going to have any new taxes. We don't want to raise taxes on people. But when the towns and cities get their services cut, what tends to happen is they got to raise taxes themselves. I mean, we're here, We've been hearing that sort of for years, but it seems like it's going to be for real this time.
0: Yes, it's going to be for real this time. Uh, you know, cities and towns are are going to have uh, less state aid. Um, than they had previous. Whether that state aid comes in the form of, of education funding, or payment in lieu of taxes, or some other grant program, uh, they're going to have less funding uh, than they did the previous year, and they're going to have to make up for that. And, and some of them have, you know, maybe already passed their budgets and, and you know, had to. Maybe use the wrong numbers or may may have to go back and and readjust some things, but you know, it could be a property tax increase.
1: Well, and this was when I last had Governor Molloy on, this was part of the argument that we were having back and forth, which is that uh, towns actually have to know as they pass their budgets how much money they're going to get from the state. And towns have property taxes, but they don't have the kind of broad taxing authority that the state government has. I mean, state government can raise money a lots of different ways. They can borrow money at a much higher level, they can raise taxes on Items they can raise taxes on yoga studios, they can all <laughs> sorts of things, but you know towns really don 't have anything other than raising the property tax
0: yep cities and towns that 's all they have is the property tax so and, and that was malloy 's argument back in two thousand Eleven, and had been his argument ever since for maintaining uh, municipal aid and education funding was that you know it's going to increase property taxes if if we don't. Um, so you know the towns and cities were reminding lawmakers yesterday that um, by passing along um, the these. Uh, Essentially, tax increases is a tax increase. Uh,
1: Joe DeLong, executive director of the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities, uh, says it's just a tax increase being put into the property tax. He says that the legislature has essentially punted the football and then gone home and told their constituents they scored a touchdown. Dan?
3: Well, it is a tax increase, at least initially, for the towns that are in the short run have— no way to adjust their budgets in a meaningful way. But in the longer run, it may force uh, municipalities to begin to economize in ways that they've been reluctant to do so uh, in the past. For example, the press for regionalization, which falls on in largely deaf ears in, in, in this state with home rule, may resonate more. Uh, as towns look for ways to economize and save money,
1: well, I will say though, when you look at the map of some of the towns that are getting cut with education funding, a lot of those western towns—they've actually been doing this for years, Dan. They've been consolidating their their you know work for years because the. Kids who go to school there are spread out all over all these miles with trees and bears and, and deer out there. At the end of the day, they've already had to do a lot of the regionalization that the rest of the state maybe should be taking out. Well, that's true for many of
3: those towns. But then we'll take West Hartford, which I think is looking at, say, a $3 million hit on educational funding. And and there are questions about whether the greater Hartford area um, should continue as a bunch of separate fiefdoms or find ways to, to consolidate police, fire, and other municipal uh, support. Uh, services.
2: So, yeah, I mean, I I, I agree up to a point with what uh, Dan is saying. I I think... First of all, most governors at some point realize that in terms of triage, property taxes are sort of where you need to ha- need to begin. I mean, Governor Rell acknowledged that at one point. Governor Malloy has acknowledged it at more than one point. You know, that if you look at what people think about, what they really mean when they talk about the tax burden of Connecticut, they really ultimately mean their property tax more than they mean anything else. It just, you know, having a car in Hartford is just insane. It's cost a lot of money. Uh, owning property in a lot of places really costs a lot of money. You want to try to drive that down. It really is a tremendous disadvantage incentive uh, for people to live in Connecticut. So you want to do something about it. But it's not It's a conversation, as Dan is suggesting, as opposed to a simple fix, because one reason that Hartford property taxes are very high, especially on cars, is because of tax exempt property in Hartford. But another reason may be, you know, this reason that Luke Bronin is asking for help right now, that it's not a very efficiently run government, that there are a lot of wasteful contracts. And so you don't necessarily want to reward a municipal government with a lack of efficiency by stabilizing the property taxes without getting anything out of them in the process. So, yeah, some of the regionalization that Dan's talking about, plus some of the other stuff that you need, I think you do have to start there. But that's it's a longer process. You can't you can't really do that at 10 p.m. on the last night of the session. Right. No, nope, Although they'll try.
0: Well, yeah. And, and that's why they, they're going to say they set up this municipal revenue sharing account where they're taking a half a percent of the sales tax and they're putting it in and they're going to redistribute it to towns and then you're going to be able to lower the car taxes in some towns. Um, so what happens every year is that, you know, so they took $50 million of that and they moved that back to the general fund and said, okay, we're going to lower the amount. We're going to then redistribute to to the towns. Um, and, and so I think the towns are like, yeah, we know that, you know, you say you're going to do all this stuff for us and you're going to help us out, but then in the end, when you have a budget problem, you take it away. But, and that's the
1: real, the real big point. Keith Fanna from The Mirror has been on here saying this for years, Christine, but it's, it's very, very true. If every time we have a budget crisis, which is all the time, we go back and we renegotiate. Well, now the sales tax money is going to go into this and we're not going to put money into transportation. We're going to take it out and put it into this. No one should ever believe at a town, a city, probably even a corporation, that anything that is said that is going to happen now in 2016 will ever take take fruit in you know, 2017, 2018.
0: Right. Exactly. I mean, and look, we didn't pass a transportation lockbox. Uh, you know, there is no no spending cap. Um, there's a commission studying the spending cap, but we, we actually have no no enforceable spending cap. So, you know, that we're not tying hands of future legislatures, but we're not actually doing anything meaningful.
3: I think um, we are entering zombie state uh, situation. <laughs> um, you know, you had uh, Japan spent 10 years in a sort of zombie state and zombie banks. I think that Connecticut, the General Assembly needs to address the problem in, a, in a, um, a serious and realistic fashion, make structural changes that fundamentally change the size and cost of state government. That's until, what they say they're doing Well, that's right what now. they say they're doing, but I don't think they're doing it wisely. They're not doing it with, uh, with uh, enough input. It's all done in the dark, and I think everybody's trying to just limp through to get beyond the next election
1: well and what would the, what would it look like taking it seriously though, Colin, because the problem is frankly much bigger than we can than we can handle in one legislative session by just cutting at some programs here and there
2: yeah, I think we have to acknowledge that theres there are uber problems here or meta problems, one of them is that we 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 live in a republic but it's really just a line of 50 gas stations with different prices up there and people are just sort of driving around looking for the gas station where that you know fits their their profile the best i want to use my credit card and I you know <laughs> i want to buy super unleaded or something and that's how people are now making decisions about where to locate companies and stuff like that so you you don't have a united states of america that's in any way united you have a competitive states of america you might as well take united out of the word and and that's beginning to create a race for the bottom uh and and it's making it very difficult to figure out how to fund a working state government. I'm not saying there's no. I'm not saying there's no fat in our state government. There is. But it, it, that problem is d- difficult. And that, then you're dependent also on a federal government whose priorities are all out of whack. We spend $600 billion on defense, more than the next six or seven uh, countries combined. We're not spending it on uh, a commensurate amount on transportation or things like that that
1: people really need. I, I just have to, in the last minute, I just have to bring this up, though. As we have all these big problems to solve, we saw this uh, little amendment put forward by Democratic lawmakers, including Minnie Gonzales and Ed Vargas. It would allow former lawmakers who are also teachers. To purchase up to four years of service in the General Assembly to boost their pension, uh, we read about this uh, in the Hartford Current. Christine, do we know where this came from? I mean, they're, they're saying, well, it's not a rat. Of course, it's not a rat because it's not the implementer <laughs> bill. But <laughs> where did this come from? Do we know anything about it?
0: No, I have no idea. I mean, it, it sounds like it was targeted towards a specific group of, of people. So I'm not sure who fits that bill.
1: <laughs> We're trying to find exactly who this person is, Colin. Squeak, squeak, squeak. It's a rat. I
2: mean, who was <laughs> who was the Finance Revenue and Mining Chairman? She had a rubber rat she would put up like on her desk. Eileen in, Daly was
0: or was that? No, it was in. Well, anyway, oh. it doesn't matter who it was. Okay. But there was a legislator who used to take a rubber rat out
2: and put it on her desk in the middle of debates. This is clearly a rat.
1: And, and so and we'll be on Rat Patrol. Uh, maybe next week as we take the wheelhouse off and we'll be back in a couple weeks we'll be able to figure out where all the rats are if they ever do end up passing a budget. Uh, Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show and WNPR. Thank you, Colin. Thank you. Thanks also to Dan Clow. Read ctgoodgov.com and appealinglybrief.com Thanks, Dan. Thanks, John. Thanks also to Christine Storch. She's the editor of ctnewsjunkie.com. Thank you, Christine. Thanks, John. Continue this conversation online. Go to wnpr.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Thanks to Tucker Ives, who produces The Wheelhouse. Lydia Brown uh, helps out, along with Kion Wolf, Heather Brandon, and our executive producer, Katie Talarski. I'm John Dankoski. This is Where We Live.